0: This is Phantom Power.
1: A woman's voice on the radio. 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 A simple phrase yet one that continues to carry a heavy historical and cultural weight. A woman's voice. The sound of my voice, I think, is usually higher.
2: I thought that I had a really kind of childish pitch to my voice.
3: It's like nails on a chalkboard. Nails on a chalkboard. Oh, I'm biased against myself, I guess. (laughs)
4: Hey, it's Phantom Power, a show where artists and scholars tell stories about sound. I'm Mac Haygood, and welcome to part two of our three-part series called Voices, featuring an exciting new voice in the world of sound studies, Stacey Copeland. In part one last month, we examined the role voices play in professional sports and unpacked some of the understandings of ability and masculinity that informed the sound of the quarterback's voice in the NFL. Today, we're going to hear a documentary that examines the role of voice in another group of professionals, this time women broadcasters and podcasters. It's called This is the Sound of My Voice, and its creator is Stacy Copeland.
1: My name is Stacey Copeland. I am a PhD candidate at the School of Communication at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, Canada, although I'm joining you from Toronto, where I'm working remotely like many of us are right now. And my research really focuses on cultural sound studies, particularly radio and podcasting, and the different ways that gender and sexuality intersect with all of those things.
4: Stacy is currently working on her dissertation and will soon be Dr. Copeland, but This is the Sound of My Voice dates back to her master's thesis research. You see, like the women that she studies, she too has a background in the male-dominated world of professional audio production. So when she began her MA studies at Toronto's Ryerson, or X, University, and she started encountering the cultural study of sound, she quickly knew what she would focus her own research on.
1: This this documentary is an exploration of um, 10 different interviewees, different women working in the radio and podcast world here in Toronto back in 2016-2017. And what I did was really just explore with them what it meant to be experiencing your voice on air as a woman at that particular time in our history. And we're thinking about that time and space during the Trump elections um, and thinking about the ways that women's voice in the political space were getting mocked. Um, So thinking about that particular time and space that this is happening in. I was really interested in, you know, has anything changed? Are women's voices on radio still getting ridiculed and mocked and critiqued in similar ways that they were say 50, 60 years ago Uh, and exploring that history with some radio makers at that time.
4: The documentary was originally in three parts but Stacy graciously edited a shorter version for this episode of Phantom Power. But before we give it a listen, I wanted to learn a little bit more about the backstory to this project. So let's talk a little bit about audience, because, you know, you were doing your master's thesis. Um, so you're Primary audience for a master's thesis is your thesis committee, yes. And if you're if you're really lucky, maybe a couple of nerds in future years might take a peek at it at some point, you know. Uh, but you also created this community radio radio piece. So how did you think about audience? This kind of dual audience in this case.
1: Yeah. It was something that I was trying to grapple with and I think hopefully I've gotten a bit better at. This was really my first foray into dealing with what it means to bring scholarship into a more public space through radio and podcasting, um, which, as you know, I'm very much invested in these days uh, across all of the work that I do. And, and so when I was first approaching doing the audio documentary, I just thought about it really as an opportunity for me to explore recording in this way, explore bringing some scholarship in. I hadn't really thought too seriously about who would actually be listening to it. I, I presumed maybe just my committee. Um, but when I saw the call from the scope to to commission documentaries i thought well this is a great opportunity to bring it to the wider community as well the community of ryerson and um the downtown toronto area as well where that radio station is located And so that made me think a bit more about the language use for sure. Mm -hmm. I still think it's a little too scholarly. There's a lot of like me quoting academics in it a bit too much, I think, uh, for a regular radio listener. But again, it's campus community radio. So they're a little bit more forgiving on different styles and variations. I think ultimately what Uh, I had in mind was someone like myself, someone who was maybe in graduate school or was curious about the idea of gendered voice in radio, maybe coming with a a bit of knowledge, but being able to access this, even if they hadn't really dove into the subject yet.
4: No, and that's what I really like about it is that I think you had a pretty light touch with the theory. You know, I really appreciated that Um, you didn't have to come to this piece with a lot of knowledge in order to understand it. And, you know, theory can be hard to parse, especially if people are using specialized terms that the audience isn't familiar with. And I I feel like in this piece, your, your focus really stayed on your interlocutors, right? Like Mm. these women who are working in radio and the theory just helped us maybe contextualize their ideas about gender and voice and radio. So I, I thought that was a great balancing act. That you Mm -hmm. did there.
1: Yeah, that's something that's really important to me in a lot of the work that I do. And I mean, throwing a big theory word out there, phenomenology is a big part of my own methodology in all of the work, really, that I'm interested in. And that means centering experiences of the people that I'm working with. So that continues into my current uh, research as well. Um, And I was really starting to develop what that meant to be translating that into audio during my master's.
4: Could we talk a little bit more about that? Because sure. I, I, I'm i really interested in how theory kind of undergirds your work. And perhaps that has ch- um, certainly it has changed from when you were an MA student to <laughs> now you're a PhD candidate, right? Uh, yeah, it
1: gets a lot longer to explain, I think. <laughs>
4: <laughs> and then hopefully it gets shorter once you really have it <laughs> <Yeah>. down. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so so the space that you're working in, thinking about the intersection of feminist theory, phenomenology, and the human voice, and broadcast technology, audio technology. Um, I'm super intrigued to hear more about like how you're thinking about that theoretically.
1: Mm-hmm. So one of the first scholars that really got me onto this approach was Christine Eric, who has a wonderful book called The Gendered Soundscape that came out um, 2015, 2016. And I just fell in love with the way that she was really marrying together soundscape studies, the work of Armory Schaefer and folks, which of course, no surprise, I ended up at SFU for my <laughs> PhD work. And um, Shaper's yeah. own
4: Simon Fraser University.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> and marrying those ideas of soundscape and acoustic ecology with the world of radio and radio history. And so reading through those that book and then um, Adrienne Cavrero as well brought a lot of my ideas about feminist uh, ideas of voice and Michelle Hilmes and radio histories so reading all of these scholars who are really starting to work on what it meant to bring cultural sound studies and uh, feminist, really, radio history together, I found myself really interested in the idea of what it meant to be bringing these ideas back to the people who were actually doing the work, making radio, making media, um, and on my own experiences as well, because uh, before I got into graduate studies and writing and research, I was working in radio. I worked as an audio engineer, um, as a producer and a freelance audio technician. So I was bringing my own experiences of being a woman in those spaces, um, often the only woman in those spaces, especially in the music industry um, gigs that I took on and bringing that experience into my research. So I wanted to hear, you know, was this what other people were experiencing? How does that relate back to the theory? And for me, feminist phenomenology was a way to explore that, really delve down into the essence of what it means to uh, understand gendered voice on radio. What is gendered voice in this space?
4: Uh, That's great. And, you know, um, this is part two in a series on voice that we're doing in The third part will be with Jonathan Stern, who will also be taking a a sort of political, phenomenological approach to disability and voice. So I I think there's going to be some really rich resonances that build up between these. Oh, yeah.
1: I can't wait to hear that.
4: Yeah. So one thing that I heard in this piece is there's this kind of ambiguity in how these professional women broadcasters were themselves thinking about voice and gender. Mm-hmm. Um, And the kind of policing of women's voices that happens so frequently in radio. And at one moment, you know, they seem to very clearly attribute the policing to sexism and an ideological kind of listening on the part of their male colleagues and their audiences. Right. And then in the next moment, they'll sometimes kind of like crossfade into attributing it to the sound of the voice itself. They'll say like mm-hmm. a high-pitched voice is just bad, you know, <laughs> doesn't sound pleasant or, or what have you. And then at other moments, they seem to almost be critiquing themselves, like saying, no, actually, that's internalized sexism on my part. And yet, nevertheless, as a radio professional, I have to listen to myself in that way and police myself in that way. Uh, One thing that I was surprised that no one brought up was, you know, the critique that has been made that audio technology itself might be sexist in its engineering, particularly broadcast technology, like uh, particularly say AM radio or Bluetooth speakers that are tuned to make lower pitch voices sound good. And they make higher pitch voices sound terrible. So I'm wondering like, this kind of ambiguity. Did you, did did you hear that too? What did you, what did you make of that?
1: Yeah. So listening back to it now, and it's something that I didn't think as much about back then because I was really invested in get just digging right into the idea of gendered voice. And, uh, now listening back, it makes me think a lot about, um, a concept I'm working with more now, which is the feminist embodied ear, which comes from, um, the embodied ear from Jennifer Stover's work. And of course, thinking about Dylan Robinson's hungry listening as well. And this idea of, um, the listening ear as being very much embedded in the same patriarchal, uh, heterosexual, white cis worlds that a lot of our media has been historically produced through. And I think that's kind of what we're hearing these women flip flop back and forth between is their own personal experience and what that seems like, but also their trained ear. So the way that their ear has been trained to hear in certain ways, um, and trained to hear certain voices as ideal or as good for radio. Um, And you can hear that switching off and on in in their minds and I, I think we all do that right if you're a critical scholar if you have a critical ear you you might come to listening to a radio show and be like oh i love that voice and then maybe go wait well why why do I love that voice so right. much? Why do I think this is a radio voice? Where does that come from? Um, and so that's something I've been thinking a lot about now uh, and listening back to it for sure. And then, yeah, of course, the the idea of sexist technology is one I think we've got some great scholars doing work on now um, and has come up in a lot in the last few years. But yeah. it, do, it is, does come up in my longer master's thesis, but didn't come up in conversation uh, with my my radio subjects, So that's why it didn't make its way in, because I wanted the documentary to ultimately reflect back on their perspectives and experiences rather than just my own as a radio scholar.
4: No, and that's what I really appreciated about it, how focused it was on their perspectives. Great. Well, what are you up to these days? So
1: well, uh, deep into the PhD candidacy, so I'm halfway through writing a big research project right now on queer and feminist radio uh, sound work as well. So. Two historical lesbian feminist community radio shows here in Canada are the kind of the foundation for my work. And then I'm also talking to contemporary queer feminist podcasters. And really the idea is to get a sense of what queer feminist sound work is. What does it sound like? How is it made? Um, how is it conceived by the people who are doing it across different generations and histories this time?
4: Fantastic. Well, I look forward to reading that and I think our audience is gonna really enjoy what we've got up right now, which is, this is the sound of my voice by Stacey Copeland.
3: The sound of my voice I think is usually higher. I would
5: say it's pretty smooth. It can be smooth.
2: I thought that I had a really kind of childish, childlike pitch to my voice.
6: I definitely have like a low register voice uh, for a, you know a female identified person.
7: I think of myself as having a pretty normal, average voice. Um, Maybe a little bit lower than usual. It's not super feminine.
0: I think I've probably got quite a deep voice. I think now my voice is pretty average. There's a sort of mischief about it sometimes.
8: Uh, (laughs) My voice is, I I feel like, a little unique. Um, Especially for a woman, I feel like... uh, I certainly, like my whole life, I've always been kind of told like, Shimon, you have a very bizarre voice or like, you have a really weird voice. My
3: own radio voice, uh, when I first started, it was very high pitched. I did need some training because I just had a habit I talk really high. People
6: tell me randomly that I have a good radio voice. So I feel like I'm not 100% sure what it means because I just have this voice.
7: People tell me I sound like a person on radio, but I don't hear myself that way at all and I never have. I've never heard my voice in like I belong on the radio. That's not the way it is at all. I would describe myself as like an average person to be honest with you, like just an average voice.
2: I have no judgment on my voice. My voice is my voice.
0: People might like it or they may dislike it, but that is the one that I have. It doesn't change.
1: This 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 is the sound, is the sound of my voice. Of my voice. a woman's voice on the radio a simple phrase yet one that continues to carry a heavy historical and cultural weight the amplified voice through radio podcasting into your headphones holds a unique power to inspire to communicate and to connect my name is stacy copeland I'd like to invite you to come along with me on this audio journey. This is the sound of my voice sheds light onto experiences of the gendered voice within our Canadian radio soundscape from right here in Toronto, Canada. So wherever you may be listening, welcome to the gendered experience of voice in radio and beyond. In our hypervisual world, from televisions to smartphones, there is something inherently authentic and deeply human about the voice extended through sound. And there always has been. Since the dawn of radio and the amplified voice, folks all around the globe have found something uniquely intimate about the radio experience. The ideal radio voice.
8: Does it really exist? Um, in terms of tone, uh, I, I don't think that there is one. I think that there are a lot of like really beautiful nuances in the way that people sound, and I don't think that there is an ideal voice. Siobhan Woodrow, I'm a broadcaster, and I'm the evening show host on Cool FM. I think the ideal voice is relaxed. I don't really care what you sound like, but if you sound friendly and relaxed and relatable, that's what I like to hear.
7: Uh, I'm Kat Callahan. I am a radio announcer, although people will say it in a bunch of different ways. I will call myself a radio announcer um, at Z1035 specifically. Honestly, just true to oneself. I mean, sure, you have to be clear, um, obviously, but one can even argue that, that because there's people who have had speech impediments, for example, that are still very... Um, you know, that have had a lot of success in the industry. But I think true to oneself, like voice, not not fake, don't fake anything.
1: With an abundance of choice in what we listen to, in what we choose to add to our mediated soundscape, perceptions of low, deep, masculine voice as preferred or ideal for sound work are beginning to become a standard of the past. Across the globe, from Japan to Sweden to Canada— The gender norms and expectations of the ideal voice are a direct reflection of that society's political and cultural framework.
5: Danny Stover. Uh, I used to think for a woman's voice on the radio, it had to be deep and authoritative and booming, um, more masculine sounding. Um, And I I used to think that, you know, if you were going to get a job in radio, you had to sound like a certain prototype female voice, which was like a man's voice. (laughs) Or as close to.
1: Although our perceptions of what is deemed to be an ideal radio voice are changing, women's voices in public space continue to be policed, subject to higher scrutiny and judgment than their male counterparts. But it seems women in this industry learn quickly to grow a tough skin, in the words of Kat Callahan,
7: Not everybody can love you. You know what I mean? It's that, that is the way it is. Even Oprah will have haters.
1: It is widely understood that the deep masculine radio voice was, and some would argue still is, the standard to which all other voices are held. What can be considered gendered voice traits were actually not the most favored among Toronto's female radio talent. Instead, the top four traits that came up, authentic, conversational, relatable, and clear. These four traits seem straightforward enough, but how does one go about sounding authentic or conversational, let alone relatable and clear? The answer is definitely anything but. I spoke with podcaster and writer Julia De Johnson, who perceives the ideal voice as rooted in personality rather than a certain pitch or tone. The personality in their voice insinuates a sense of
2: authenticity that they haven't been told that this is what they have to sound like but this is what they sound like Mm. and that is very attractive and welcoming um, to my ears because it makes me sound like I'm in a conversation with them which is exactly what I like to have in my podcast I don't like being told stuff that's kind of boring
1: and when it comes to the sound of our own voice recorded well things seem to get even harder to explain my name is Susan McReynolds In terms of how my voice
0: sounds, I think I've probably got quite a deep voice. Um, Maybe a little bit lower than usual. It's not super feminine. Uh,
8: (laughs) My voice is, I I feel like, a little unique. Um, Especially for a woman, I feel like... uh, I certainly, like, my whole life, I've always been kind of told, like, Siobhan, you have a very bizarre voice, or, like, you have a really weird voice.
6: People tell me randomly that I have a good radio voice, so I feel like I'm not 100% sure what it means because I just have this voice.
1: Unlike the human ability to describe our visual appearance, the lack of common language around the voice, such a crucial extension of the body so intimate to our presentation of self, is startling. The days of the old school radio announcer are fading away, and the rise of the authentic, person like you and me, has arrived. But what that exactly is, and what that means for gender representation in the media, is still unclear. Radio veteran Stacey Englehart put it simply.
3: There is no ideal radio voice. When I started... It was trying to sound like an announcer, and and that is just out the window. It's using your voice. Back in the day, they wanted that. You're listening to the top nine at nine. It's not like that anymore. People want a real person.
1: Yet the question still lingers. Indeed, we may be more receptive in our citizen-journalist-podcasting era to listen to a multiplicity of voices, whether they are trained announcers or not, But we must consider which voices are rising to the top, which voices come to represent the professional, the public, the commercial within our broadcast soundscape, and in turn how these voices shape our perceptions of gender and identity in the media. To fully grasp our conception of the ideal radio voice, we must also come to understand what is now considered to be the most undesired. As we have seen through our analysis of the ideal, in air quotes, we are moving towards an ungendering of the ideal voice from one of masculine or deep sonic traits to one of conversational and relatable presentation. But as we have found in the trend toward a deeper female voice on air, and of course looking back at researcher Anne Carm's notes in her groundbreaking work The Human Voice, women's voices on air are certainly changing, but they seem to be changing toward a more masculine or deeper sound. If we are to truly experience any sense of gender ambiguity as well as multiplicity among our mediated voices in Canada, voices which fall outside of these norms must also find their way onto the airwaves. The number one trait that participants indicated as undesired for broadcast is the phony or inauthentic voice. While these voices seem to be fading from the airwaves... We used to call them uh, Ronnie Radio Voices, like, hey,
0: we're going to blah, blah, blah. My name is Stacey Thompson. I go by Stacy on the air. And you know what? It, it's still out there, too. You'll be hard-pressed to find it in a market this size. You know, Toronto's the fourth largest market in all of North America.
1: This Ronnie personality is certainly one that I can draw up in my mind. That over-the-top, over-excited sales style of top 40 radio announcer... While the undesired trait of putting it on or unauthentic voice bodes well for the gender ambiguous traits of the ideal, like conversational and relatable. On the flip side, the indication of the high-pitched voice as undesired by three participants brings us back to our historical propensities for the low or lower-pitched voice. There's
3: nothing more annoying than a high-pitched voice on the air, and it's just a very sexist thing but it's radio. People want a more soothing voice when it's too high-pitched and too annoying people tune out.
1: While on the other end of the frequency chart, we find that three participants indicate distaste for the booming male voice as well.
2: I think that I was raised on a very, on the Peter Mansbridge voice. So I think I feel very relaxed around that voice because it sounds like my youth and I have a nostalgia to um, instinctually trust that voice because I've been told it was a trustworthy voice. However, at the same time, when I do hear voices like that now, I I feel that feeling and I feel annoyed that it's just another person that sounds like that. So I think I I have a battle inside of me about it. (laughs) I think the voice that used to calm me is the voice that I'd like to hear less of.
1: It is tempting to consider that rather than moving toward A multiplicity of voices, or an opening up of pitch range from high to low regardless of gender, we seem to be experiencing a normalization of voices taking place, a meeting in the middle of sorts. Goodbye high-pitched feminine voices and goodbye low-pitched masculine ones too. Whether the shift towards a consistently lower female or mid-range male voice will expand to include a wider range of sonorous voices and an opening of the airwaves across vocalities, only time will tell. Are women's voices still undesirable over the air? This person actually phoned and said,
0: get those two biddies off the air.
5: Certain stations and companies rest on those laurels of like, oh, you're a woman, you want to be on the morning show? Great, you can do entertainment and you can laugh at the host.
3: It's like nails on a chalkboard. Oh, I'm biased against myself, I guess.
7: (laughs) And it's not even necessarily like their voice or their inflection, Mm -hmm. um, but just having them be... A female.
8: And I was asking them, Lee, why there's no uh, just two
5: women morning shows? Why is that? I don't know that it's always intentional or meant to make a woman f- feel less than, but definitely radio's not a super equal opportunity. It is, a, it is very much a boys club.
1: The experiences of women in Toronto's radio and podcasting industry highlight the continued policing and high level of judgment when it comes to women's voices amplified. It is through this repetition of language, gendered stereotypes, radio tropes, and other performative acts that gender inequity continues to persist within the masculine-feminine power dynamic of our own construction. You tend to get the same thing time and
0: again. Uh, Oh, she has a really screechy voice or she has a really squeaky voice or she has a really high pitched voice or what was it The, the, the particular one that was thrown at Hillary Clinton? Shouty. She's so shouty.
1: Power. Power is a central theme in the discussion of gendered politics within our modern age. Who is deemed to have the authority or ideal voice for amplification is still an ongoing struggle for the professional radio broadcaster.
7: Not even necessarily like their voice or their inflection, Mm -hmm. um, but just having them be a female. And I think for some people, it's hard for them to hear Females talking the way that females actually talk.
1: Post-feminist rhetoric claiming the triumph of equality, along with the push for fundamental rights during the first and second wave feminist movements, have recently come under fire as intersectional and third wave feminists gain increasing momentum in our Trumpian global political landscape. In the radio and podcasting realm, the post-feminist dream is far from reality. Do you recall ever hearing any negative comments about other women's voices on air? Yes. Yeah.
7: (laughs) Yes. All the time. Um, I mean, people make comments about everybody, right? But women, um, women specifically sometimes I think have it, can still have it harder.
1: Up talk, vocal fry, and higher pitched voices receive particular note as traits discriminated against related to the female or feminine voice on air. These characteristics share a common thread of historical association with younger, less educated, feminine voices, typically linked to that valley girl or bimbo stereotype. American films like cult classic Clueless can be attributed to the stereotypes perpetuation and parody of the uptalk and baby talk style of speech. Whatever. One
8: broadcaster noted, "The thing that I hear the most is like her voice is so high, it's so annoying." She Sounds like an airhead. Although I don't face those things, I'm very aware that other women do, and that can be quite frustrating. The pitch of your voice is no correlation with your intelligence.
1: In contrast to uptalk, vocal fry is a distinct creaky-sounding phonation, or glateralization, if you want to get science-y, produced by a patterned low-frequency agitation of the vocal cords when the speaker comes into their lower vocal register. Although vocal fry is tied to low pitch production and thus would be a logical product of the more ideal radio voice in relation to that low or medium pitch voice, but for the female or feminine voice, the perception of vocal fry has been found to have the opposite effect. Young adult female voices with vocal fry are perceived as less competent, less educated, less trustworthy, less attractive, and less hireable. Another theory is that the rise of vocal fry among English-speaking young females may be just another way in which our voices are changing generation to generation. But as Ira Glass, host of NPR's This American Life, pointed out, men do it too. He admitted to his own voice, often including the much-despised creaky phonation. But while his female staff members received hate mail about their vocal fry— Glass, as a male-identified radio voice, seemed to be immune to the phenomenon. While the women of NPR's This American Life receive negative comments for their creaky speak, one of the young participants in my study actually indicated they don't mind vocal fry at all.
5: I think... It is a lot of that ingrained gender stuff that, um, like I said, I don't mind vocal fry. I actually kind of like it. And I think I've, t- I've had many conversations about this with like female friends. I think I'm just so used to it because so many people I know do it. And, and men and women, I think it's more generational than it is gendered in some ways.
1: Sounding too feminine or girly in both presentation and the content being communicated can become a nagging anxiety to overcome for women entering the radio and sound work field. As radio scholar Christine Eric notes, in Radio and the Gendered Soundscape, quote, if the female voice broaches these boundaries, it disrupts the sonic environment, and the result is often perceived as dissonant and jarring. Our ears as both producers and listeners become accustomed to this patriarchal reverberation, so anything that doesn't really fit is found to be a disruption. I do think that there is a
5: space in radio where women fit in historically where it's like a woman can very easily become the laugh track. A woman can very easily become that, oh, you're going to do the entertainment hits and you're going to sound like very Ryan Seacrest co-hosty voice. And I think that's, it might not be an ex- uh, like a bias in a bad way. It gives women an opportunity to to work and have, have their position. But I do think that that's kind of uh, certain stations and companies rest on those laurels of like, oh, you're a woman, you want to be on the morning show? Great, you can do entertainment and you can laugh at the host. And so those are where I think there is a bias that there is like kind of like, oh, you here's where you fit because your voice sounds this way. So I would say that that it's there. I don't know that it's always intentional or meant to make a woman f- feel less than, but definitely radio is not a super equal opportunity. It is a it is very much a boys' club.
1: Perceptions of gendered topics on radio, such as entertainment hits, can be traced back to the creation of women's programming. As noted by radio scholar Michelle Hilmes, the growing number of radios emerging across America in each and every home made the medium a logical choice for women-targeted programming. Radio as a new medium enjoyed a rapid growth in listenership during its early years, playing a key role in the formation of feminine stereotypes and women-oriented subjects such as entertainment news, gossip, fashion, and those handy tips for the modern housewife. Although such subjects continue to have a widespread appeal— The gender division of what is considered feminine lowbrow media versus the masculine highbrow media subjects politics, art, and culture really projects division of binary gender norms that not only affect women but men as well and discourage men from engaging in topics or employment still seen as women's work. The gendered soundscape of radio is not only perpetuated through the mediated division of feminine and masculine topics of discussion, but temporally through time through the inequities of prime time versus daytime programming. Unlike the realm of television, which relegates prime time to the evening hours, terrestrial radio hits its peak listenership during the early hours of the commuter drive. In discussion of discrimination against women's voices, one participant brought up the gender notion of the morning show format. She shared the observation...
8: And I was asking them why there aren't many, if at all, especially in Toronto, if you can think back, even historically, why there's no uh, just two women morning shows. Certainly women are quite commercial, and certainly you can make money off of a a morning show like that, and morning show is the bread and butter for any radio station. But what his answer was... Because people flip through the dials so quickly, they think that two women will sound too similar. And because of that, because you're not gonna have two distinct voices, Mm. it won't make sense. And I kind of thought it was ridiculous. Well, women sound like all sorts of things. I mean, any voice is like a fingerprint or a snowflake. But surely there's two men, and a lot of morning shows as well. Mm -hmm. Why not make that same comparison? And I didn't quite understand that. And at the end, it was kind of like, well, agreed to disagree with this person. That's definitely a hard thing, because if you have two talented women, why not give them a morning show? Isn't that the basis for a morning show? It's just two talented, captivating, hilarious, informative individuals?
1: Based on numerous data from the time period of my interview with Woodrow, six morning shows of the top ten most listened to stations in Toronto were hosted by men solo or as a duo, and the other four stations went the route of a male-female duo going back to the history of the Mr. and Mrs. Breakfast format that became a radio staple in the 1940s. As Western culture moves toward a changing broadcast soundscape, listeners and producers alike ought to stop asking which voices are preferred and start asking why. When you present your voice, you open yourself up toward each and every listener. The sound of your voice carries with it traces of age, sex, gender, sexuality, and many more facets of your collective and individual identity. As feminist phenomenologist Adriana Cavrero reminds us, when the human voice vibrates, there is someone in flesh and bone who emits it. In contrast to early media theories of disembodiment and play-acted voice through electronic mediation, women in Toronto's modern soundwork industry experience their voice as an undeniably embodied extension of self.
0: Who I am on the air and who I am in the halls and who I am if I'm out at a public event and stuff is all pretty much the same. I'm going to sound the same if I meet somebody in, in person or if I answer the phone in the control room.
1: Well, in the same moment, they are aware of the performative aspects of their voice on air. It just kind of happens when the mic's on, when my headphones
5: are in, when I'm in the zone and I feel on, that's when this version of myself comes through.
1: Mm. Is this your radio
5: voice? I now I'm, I'm really confused like I'm trying to think is am I putting it on? Yeah, I think there's there's more of a projection. Um, there's more of trying to speak succ- uh, succinctly and trying to get across a message. Uh, I'm very aware of how many ums and ahs and likes, and I I hear them, so I don't think this is my true radio voice, but it is more of an interview
1: answering questions voice. (laughs) Your own voice, referenced in studio headphones or played back on air as I'm listening to my own voice right now, is often experienced as alien to us upon first listen. This discomfort with voice playback is a common reaction to hearing your own voice without that internal resonance of the physical body. While some participants indicated a continued alien experience of their voice, even after several years on the air, others experienced a shift towards a certain level of comfort and acceptance in hearing their own voice amplified.
5: Yeah, my, my voice has kind of gone through a process of of just hearing it more, listening to yourself more. Like you really do kind of realize what you rely on, what your weaknesses are, what your comforts are. And I think just more listening to yourself you learn what they are and you can kind of adapt. And in the moment, you can change things. And yeah, I think it's, I honestly think it's just listening and working every day and uh, just realizing what sounds good and what doesn't sound good.
1: This comfortability with their radio voice in relation to their own perception of self is not only an understanding or recognition that, yes, this is the sound of my voice, but an understanding of the radio voice as part of their gendered performativity and identity construction you might recall the theme of authenticity, the key term in the understanding of the voice and of identity. And authentic emotion through speech and voice has been proven to be orally recognized as distinct from play-acted emotions. Researchers Drolet, Schubatz, and Fisher in their 2011 study on the subject found that participants reacted more to authentic rather than play-acted emotion. Interestingly enough, their study relied on voice recordings from a German radio archive. The use of radio archive material for their research furthers this connection between sound work and authentic presentation. This response to authentic presentation is echoed by this desire for authentic voices in today's radio and podcast industry. The personality in their
2: voice insinuates a sense of authenticity That they haven't been told that this is what they have to sound like, but this is what they sound like. Mm. And that is very attractive and welcoming um, to my ears because it makes me sound like I'm in a conversation with them.
6: Eleanor Grace echoes people who are just natural conversationalists and it just sounds like they're talking with you and you're comfortable. um, That's the number one thing that I look for. I'm not sure if that so much is a a type of voice as much as it is about, you know, your delivery uh, and just like how authentic and personable you sound when you're on the radio.
1: Our modern media industry thrives on this call-response model, furthering the desire for and acceptance of authentic conversational voices because listeners feel like they really get to know these radio broadcasters. We follow them on Instagram, we chat with them on Facebook, and listen to them every day on our morning drive, our drive home, or maybe during our workday. As a broadcaster in her early years, Siobhan Woodrow sees this rise of social media as clearly having
8: Certainly something to do with it.
1: The it here being the desire for authenticity in the voices we hear extended through radio and podcasting media. Woodrow goes on to say,
8: I think because we're so curious about looking into people's lives and, uh, you know, people like Instagram stars, YouTube stars, like people that are, are just regular everyday folk. But they're kind of famous, and I think that you want all of your media to reflect that to a degree. So even though I'm in a very old, old profession, it has to keep up with the times and 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 reflect what's going on right now, which is really that anyone can be popular and anyone can be famous. So if you have anyone talking to you, wouldn't they want to sound like your friend?
1: Woodrow's words echo the shift we are experiencing in sound work towards this desire for a multiplicity of voices – Booming, masculine voices and overly scripted voices of authority are no longer desired for local radio or conversational formats. But as the authentic voice becomes a desired sound for radio and podcasting talent, an awareness of the performative aspect of authenticity comes into our presentation of the voice on air. In relation to our own voice, Woodrow revealed,
8: I think that I sound relatable beyond anything else because that's what I like. In a broadcaster, so I generally try to reflect that.
1: This awareness of trying to sound relatable and trying to sound authentic indicates relatability on air as a desired trait while addressing this conscious awareness of performativity in the presentation of our own self-identity. I mean, right now, I'm thinking about what I'm saying and I'm trying to convey it in the clearest way that I can, but I still want to sound like me.
8: This generation of broadcasters, I feel like we've really had it drilled into our heads, like just sound like you. That big, Ronnie radio voice. no one wants to hear it anymore. And quite frankly, I feel the same way. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear like somebody, I don't want to hear somebody reading me a commercial when they're just trying to tell me the weather. I want you to sound like we're having a conversation like you're somebody that I've known for years.
1: Authenticity carries deep ties to a notion of power and of self-knowledge within our unconscious. The Greek ancestry of the word authentic actually comes from authentio, which in short means to have full power over. And there is certainly power in the understanding of the amplified voice through technology. Swing host and radio personality Danny Stover explained it as such. I don't really think of it as two separate voices.
5: Although I'm I'm very aware that they are. My speaking voice is very different than my radio voice, air quotes, and because I work in an industry where it's encouraged to be yourself and to share personal experience, I don't see a very big disconnect. It's like, well, this is who I am. I'm just at work now.
1: Listening to your own voice for a moment outside of the chambers of your own body as it extends over the air aids in further understanding the ways in which others perceive your voice. This desire to understand the complex constructions of voice identity within our current digitally driven social and cultural context in turn reflects on the ways in which modern sound work women are challenging this historically masculine, heteronormative expectation of the North American radio soundscape. Like
3: When I started working at my radio station, which is unreal to think, I was the first female radio host to ever work there. And this was only in like 92, you know? So it's just things are changing where more women want to get into the business. And I think that's absolutely fantastic.
0: I don't think you're going to go on without a diversity of voices for much longer. And we're speaking from an extremely diverse city. Uh, It might not be quite the same every single place, but certainly if you're speaking from somewhere like Toronto, that diversity of voices is going to have to get in there for sure. I think that we have to be careful, not only with racial diversity uh, visually, but we have to make sure that immigrant voices are a lot more heard on air. I think that's important.
1: Once you start to listen, it is not difficult to locate the voices excluded from our radio soundscape. In a city as diverse and multicultural as Toronto, once you open your ears critically to the media soundscape, you have to wonder. Where are the immigrant voices? The voices with accents? The voices of disability? Where are the voices of our city? This is a simple question, but one that sparks a desire for change in what is perceived as an outdated medium with bursting potential for new generations. I want to leave you with one participant's answer.
8: I really want to say that it's changing so, so badly and i don't know that i would be wrong if i said that i think it's going to be a slow burn
1: this is the sound of my voice this is the sound this is the sound of my voice, voice. this is the sound of my voice a radio thesis exploring the gendered experience of voice in radio and beyond my name is stacy copeland And i thank you for coming with me on this audio journey this is a production in part of my master's thesis titled the gendered experience of voice in canadian radio and beyond toronto canada completed at ryerson and york university in 2017. thanks go out to my supervisor anne mclennan my committee members and colleagues in the communication and culture graduate program And a special thanks to all the radio and podcast women who took the time to speak with me about their experiences around the Amplified Voice. Without your input and years of experience, this work wouldn't exist. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you.